and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. This is Spencer Martin, your host and author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we are doing something a little bit different. Since I'm out of the country hitting up some Bundesliga games in Germany, I am going to play a banked interview I did with Vice President of Communications at Strava, Andrew Vance. Andrew, outside of his work with Strava, is the host of the Choose the Hard Way podcast, which is a show about peak performance and the obstacles people overcome to do great things. Andrew is also a former freelance writer who, outside of doing features, interviews, and profiles about people, places, and things at the limits of human experience for publications such as Rolling Stone, Slate, Outside, the Los Angeles Times, Vela News, and many other outlets, also covered cycling on both the competitive and gear side. So I thought he would be a great resource to chat with, and we ended up talking um, in a wide-ranging conversation about not only his career, but just his experience with the U.S. racing scene, you know, kind of as it evolved in the 90s through the 2000s and, and where it is now, both the long road it's come on and a bit of a circular path where we both kind of feel that uh, the gravel scene is, is now just a, like a reboot of, of the early mountain bike scene. So we really get into a lot of different stuff. So if that is interesting to you, please enjoy this conversation. It's great to have you on. Thanks, thanks for joining me. Hey, it's great to be here, Spencer. As I've told you before, I'm a huge fan of your work. Always look forward to getting the subscribers newsletter from you. Honestly, one of my favorite things that I read every week and one of the most discussed piece, pieces of content among my close friends who are big cycling fans. <laughs> that's, that's very kind of you to say. Now, now I'm uncomfortable for the rest of the interview. Um, <laughs> no, nothing makes me more uncomfortable than praise. It's mission uh, accomplished. Yeah. Well, it's it's great to have you on. It's it's always it's your vice president at Strava and, and you have a long history in the sports. You were a journalist, like a freelance journalist for years following the sport. Um, and then you slowly you know, kind of integrated yourself into the corporate side of what, you know, I think probably most listeners would say is their most important or at least most paid attention to software throughout the day, Strava. It's a really interesting company. I think it's like revolutionized a lot of the ways that like we ride or we we follow riding as well. So um, pretty interesting that you found yourself there. But do you want to talk about your early days and like how you got into cycling and what was going on at the time? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for uh, thanks for being a Strava athlete. And I agree with you. I find the Strava community and the Strava product to be incredibly motivating. And it's, it's one of the favorite parts of, of, of my day as well. So it's great to hear that, that, uh, you enjoy it, Spencer. And, you know, when I started out in cycling, <clears throat> the way that I was keeping track of my training was writing stuff down and probably like a spiral bound notebook. So it was a, it was a different time. It was a different place. It was Kansas city, Missouri in the late eighties. And, we had a family friend who I have, I, I need to talk to her inexplicably. She was into triathlon at that time, which was a uh, kind of a strange sport for someone to be into in Kansas city in like 1987, 88. And it was a friend of my mom's I started going out on some rides with her. And I distinctly remember one of my, I think we've all had the experience of going out on a, a group ride and particularly probably early on in our experience as cyclists doing something that violates those unwritten <laughs> laws of group rides and having, <laughs> having someone yell at you. And, uh, very early on, I remember 
going on a ride with this family friend, a couple other kids, and we rolled up on a stop sign and I wasn't paying attention and rode into her back wheel. So that was my first experience with <laughs> being a, a bad actor on a group ride. And she, uh, she quickly corrected me, but yeah, so I, I kind of got into it. I had vaguely seen some Greg Lamont stuff on like wide world of sports or something, you know, back then you'd be lucky if you like caught something on a Saturday for 30 minutes. It seemed really interesting to me. And the way I really discovered the sport was through, you know, a handful of friends that had an interest in going out and riding. Mountain biking was starting to be popular at that time. My dad had bought my mom a pink Schwinn Murata for like $250 for Mother's Day, I think in like 87 or 88. I started riding that in this kind of rundown swamp called Minor Park in Kansas City that had some trails. Got really, really into mountain biking. I just like absolutely loved it. Started paying attention to the sport through magazines like Winning, Velo News, Mountain Bike Action, Mountain Bike. And, you know, before that, I had been really into like BMX and freestyle and reading magazines like Freestyle and BMX Plus, BMX Action. So bikes had always kind of been part of my life. And then, you know, throughout high school, into college, and then into adulthood, I got more and more into riding bikes with gears. And over time, I it I was never great at competitive cycling. I've I have a handful of results of which I'm proud that are totally unremarkable to anyone who's an actual accomplished cyclist. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I did twice get second place in the Unbound Gravel 100 before people like Ashton Lambie showed up and you know turned it into a really uh, high profile event. Uh, that's a serious result. Don't scoff at well, that. Well, that's a good result. Yeah, I mean that was back when people were looking at the 100, like um, uh, you know, like going out and doing a, a fun ride. Uh, it was a little bit different, but yeah, I trained hard for it. I'm proud of the result and I wish I would have won because there's not a chance in <laughs> hell I would ever probably get that result again. Uh, but all of that's to say cycling has been a really important and core part of a, a well-balanced life that includes a lot of other things. And at this point in time, like being a dad, um, and a, a number of other things, but yeah, cycling's always been really core to who I am and what I do and geared bikes for well over 30 years. That's very cool. I'm also from the Kansas city Metro area. So, um, if, if you're not from there and you're listening, cycling, like people do ride there. It is a very unusual pursuit though. It is not part of the mainstream at all. So it was, um, what was that like when you were getting into it? Like you were probably living the sport through the content you were consuming, like Vela news and yeah road bike action. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, road bike action wasn't even around at that point in time, but Velo news was around winning was around. I don't know if you remember that magazine, uh, not around anymore bicycling. There was a magazine called bicycle guide, which I think it was like a Peterson publication, but yeah, absolutely. Living through the magazines, living through the personalities of the editors, uh, people like, uh, zap Zapata Espinoza, now an editor, I believe at mountain bike action, road bike action. And at the time, you know, uh, he was writing for Rodale's mountain bike, had a column and yeah, just kind of like being in, drawn into the sport, to the culture of the sport, slowly learning about it in a piecemeal fashion, of course, watching movies like 
breaking away and you know other films but that was really all the access that we had to the larger cycling world and it was an unusual thing to do football was really like the most popular sport but i was always drawn to things that were perhaps a, a bit different such as cycling i was really into skateboarding and i grew up playing in punk rock and hardcore bands as well and i do think that there's something about that like diy ethos and that there's some kind of parallel there between cycling or certain aspects of cycling i think right now we're kind of seeing it manifest in certain aspects of of gravel racing before it was maybe like the fixed gear community or cyclocross community but i think that there are some parallels there and i also think if you look at pro cycling and gravel cycling i think there's something happening where people are really I think looking at cycling as a form of uh, self-expression, I think Taylor Finney in a way <laughs> embodies that. I felt, I don't know Taylor, but just from what I've read and in interviews I've heard with him, it seems like that almost was more appealing or interesting to him than the competitive aspect, like the existential self-discovering and expression aspect of cycling. So you ended up after school, you, you went to University of Missouri, and then you end up in Los Angeles. Um, and what, what year did you first move to L.A.? Yeah, I moved to L.A. in 1997 to go to graduate school at the California Institute of the Arts, which is an art school started by the Disney family. It's in Valencia, California, which is just north of L.A. And when I, I went there to get an MFA in creative writing, I was really interested in fiction writing and that's, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a novelist while I was in school. I had a colleague or a colleague, whatever, a classmate in my, uh, my, uh, <laughs> yeah, in my MFA cohort who wrote a piece for vice, which at the time was a tabloid. Like it was a print tabloid you would pick up at music stores or places like that. And I was like, wow, this dude just made like 50 bucks. His name's in this publication that's like kind of interesting. Maybe I'll try that. So I tried that while I was in grad school. That's where I published my first piece, which was about a large scale paintball compound in Corona, which is about, about an hour outside of LA. And then I started trying to get a job at a magazine and there were a handful of cycling publications in based in LA at the time Rodale's mountain bike was based in Burbank that was really the job that I wanted because Zap was the editor there and I really thought he had a very provocative controversial style and was like very punk rock and so that that was very appealing to me kind of evocative of things I'd read in Thrasher magazine growing up and so tried to get a job there. There was another publication, Mountain Biking, that was uh, in the West Valley. And that's where I ended up getting a job, worked there for about a year. And then after that, I, honestly, I, I have a tremendous respect for people who write for cycling outlets. For me, it was interesting, but I, I found it to be really challenging to continually produce interesting content, particularly on the tech side of things. So writing about gear, about bikes and making it interesting over and over again, I found to be not my favorite thing to do. So I decided to start freelancing and then that's what I ended up doing for the next decade. 
that's a really good point. I, I briefly worked at Vela News, and I know what you mean, where y- you love cycling. It's all you want to write about or talk about. And then when you're in the grind of the machine, it can be very exhausting. And you wonder how, like, it, it starts to kind of bleed the, at least for me, the passion out of it. I have no idea how people do it. I have, like, a lot of respect for, like, the great tech editors who can just continually churn out interesting content. Like, I'm not sure how they do it. Yeah, I, I don't know either. and. I think it also got to a point where I would definitely like had a gear fascination. That's part of what I think is cool about cycling. And I don't know how you feel Spencer, but like that combination of human and machine. So like there's always emerging of technology and human performance and the limits of both, which is really cool. Like cycling is one of the sports where you can go buy off the shelf, the equivalent of like an F1 car, uh, and you can buy speed, but also the best way to get fast, of course, is through discipline, training, nutrition, um, practicing table pushaways and fork drops, things like that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah, being, you know, <laughs> being at that outlet at that time, uh, it was a, it was like the kind of the, the big cross country mountain biking wave that started in the United States, obviously it was really starting to crest. But it was an incredibly interesting moment in time because there were not a handful, but like there were many riders who had six figure contracts for cross country mountain bike racing. The Norba series was, you know, every race was like a mini Coachella. Like it, it was really crazy, like going to places like um, Mammoth Mountain, Big Bear, seeing riders like Tinker Juarez, Julie Furtado, Cadell Evans. Uh, Sean Palmer was kind of around at that moment in time with his tour bus and gold LeMay suits. So it was really a Missy Giovia as well. So it was like really like the last gasp of the absolute apex of cross country mountain bike racing in the United States and downhill as well. And then from that moment forward, that's when Europeans really started to dominate the sport, you know? It's wild to look back on that and to see like the set, the money people were making. It's obviously like, you know, compared to someone like, you know, running a software company, that's not a ton of money, but you know, for, for riding a bike in the nineties, like that's, that's insane. Not even in Europe at the highest level, but in a Norba series in North America that they could command that really boggles the mind. And it does, it, it gives you a little bit of a different perspective on gravel where where it's like now we're kind of seeing like the rebirth of that scene with gravel. Um, but then also like the vicious cycle of like, we all know what happened to Norba. And then are we just doomed to repeat the cycle over again? Well, maybe we'll get into that in, in a little bit, uh, like a little, a little bit later. Cause I am interested to get your perspective on the cycle of like growth peak decline. And then like ultimately like dissolve, like, the scene dissolving in us cycling um because you've probably been around for at least multiple cycles of that yeah absolutely when you were freelancing in la were you more focused on uh, like north american racing or were you going over to europe and covering a lot of races there no so when i was freelancing cycling became probably five to ten percent of what i was writing about and it's something i did want to continue to write about but really the red thread running through my work as a freelance journalist. And honestly, like I see this in the arc of my career, including what I'm doing with my own podcast now, which is called choose the hard way. 
And it's about the obstacles that people overcome to do great things. And my guests are some of the world's top performers in a really broad variety of disciplines. And part of what I found to be really awesome about being a freelance journalist and different from what I described about kind of the repetitiveness that I did not enjoy about what I was doing while on staff in a magazine was I could really follow my curiosity. So if I was curious about a topic, uh, a person, a notable person, I would find some way to get someone to pay me money to go spend time with that person or to go have an experience and write about it. And, you know, I ended up writing about, uh, an incredibly broad variety of things, but some of my subjects were people like Samuel L. Jackson, Michael Madsen, Dane Cook, Daft Punk, who I spent two days with in Vegas and LA without their helmets on, which was pretty, yeah, (laughs) yeah, which was uh, pretty amazing to me. And that was, I believe in around 2007, I also spent a lot of time with the production designer who created their, I don't know how big of a Daft Punk fan you are, but that was the tour where they had the pyramid, which at the time was like mind blowing and revolutionary and really catalyzed the beginning of what happened with EDM after that. Um, and then, you know, I was writing about a lot of different subcultures that I found to be interesting and was participating in things like full moon gatherings in the Mojave desert, uh, and just like a a lot of different things, but as it pertained to cycling, going back to your question, I, I was, uh, I was, I wrote about the tour de France from my couch, basically. So like OLN was. Uh, I don't know if you remember OLN. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember. Yeah. OLN. yeah, OLN was like, whoa! Talk about like a quantum leap forward from having magazines and like 28k internet. But you know, they started to broadcast the tour every day, and I I wrote tour commentary, daily tour commentary for FoxSports.com for several years, and so I was like writing about the tour. Part of being a freelancer was you know, if I had a big assignment come up that always superseded going on a junket or like a cool press trip. So I had multiple opportunities, you know, probably at least six or seven times to go to the tour. Um, including at one point I wrote about Craig Lewis. I don't know if you know, Craig, but he was one of Vauder's writers who had a very, he had a world-class engine and like really, really high potential, really interesting backstory had a horrific crash i believe at the tour of georgia where he hit a car during a time trial that came onto the course um and that was at the beginning of vauders program and at the time vauders was like hey like if we ever go to the tour like you're gonna you know they were fully clean team they were transparent they're trying to change the sport and he was like you know like i would if we ever go to the tour, which we're going to do, like, you're welcome to come over and, you know, just like shadow us throughout the tour. I never took him up on that. It's one of the regrets I have. Cause I think no. that, <laughs> yeah, I think that would have been um, pretty incredible. And I actually think Paul Kimmage actually ended up doing that. Uh, one of the years that Vauder's team was at the tour. So, yeah. So I was writing about uh, some, the tour, and then also things that were coming up on the domestic side, lifestyle magazines periodically would be like, hey, go write about Thing X. So at one point, 
we all remember Michael Ball and rock racing. Those of us that have been around the sport long enough. I don't know, Spencer, do you remember the whole rock racing? Yeah, I, I, I remember this vividly. This was like just as I was getting seriously getting into road cycling. Yeah. And uh, just if, if you don't, if you're listening and you don't know, they were, I mean, how do we even, this is actually, it's like an interesting point in time. It was pre-2008 crash because Michael Ball was a, like a jean mogul. Like he was <laughs> selling like $400 pair of jeans and like they were selling like hotcakes. And that, that was a sign that maybe the economy was a little overheated. <laughs> this guy could afford to fund a cycling team. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, Michael Ball was an apparel mogul. Yeah, and you're right. It was a really interesting moment in time. There was a lot of embroidery and, and stitching on jeans. Yes. yes. <laughs> so it was like uh, Affliction, Seven for All Humanity, uh, all of these different jeans brands. And yeah, so he put a ton of money into cycling. He had some kind of elite or quasi elite cycling pedigree, I believe. I don't want to get it wrong, but I think Michael Ball maybe had been a relatively high level junior and then had gone into, had left those dreams behind to go into being a, a jeans mogul and put together like a really world-class domestic team. Like probably from a talent point of view, like a team of like absolute hitters for that era. Like the people I can remember who were on the team, um, who I'll name in a second, but like world-class talent and also total characters, like, like the biggest personalities in the sport at the time. And also like a lot of SoCal attitudes. So there was like an interesting combination of elements, but like they had Dave Klinger after Klinger got the full face tattoo, which, you know, I know that we're all relatively used to seeing lots of face tattoos and it's not really shocking anymore in 2021. But I can tell you when I went to a CBR crit, which that's, that was the local crit series in LA. Uh, uh, you see a lot of the CBR crits and the Williams brothers videos today. Yeah. 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 And, but Klinger was out there racing after he got dropped from whatever his, his, uh, I think he had a world tour contract or he was on USPS he got dropped after he got the face tattoo and like rolling up to a CBR crit for me to do like, you know, whatever the cat four three, four race and seeing, Oh, like Dave Klinger's here. He's got, he has a full face tattoo, like his whole <laughs> face. It was like pretty shocking. So that's rock brought all these riders together and, you know, put like a massive lifestyle marketing budget behind it. And it was, I, I don't know how I would characterize it. It was kind of like the glam rock version of, uh, it's like the, yeah, gun, the and, guns and roses of domestic cycling or something. And the reason they were able to do this is because they were all, they all had gotten caught up in like recent doping scandals and had returned to the sport. I actually kind of respect it. They were like the bad boys of cycling, but I respect balls. Like it moved there to kind of recognize it's like, this is a market inefficiency. These guys are like, yeah legally allowed to race why don't i just sign them and like start my own punk rock team and we all remember it like yeah we're not sitting around talking about like the spider tech teams that were very <laughs> good you know it's like we remember rock rock racing yeah and i'm yeah that'd be something uh an interesting topic to dig into more like the you know styles make fights i one of the things that i wrote about frequently was the ufc i wrote about a number of heavyweight and other weight UFC champions, Kane Velasquez, um, 
and other fighters and like, yeah, like in the UFC and other sports, like personalities are a huge part of like why people are drawn to sports. And I think Michael Ball recognized that. And you're right. Like he exploited a market and efficiency. And I remember going to the team training camp, which was in Malibu, which was unusual. I mean, also think about where do people typically have their domestic racing training camp? It's, uh, you know, like this, like Tucson yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. Now it's like a Tucson Airbnb at the time. It probably would have been, you know, like a super eight in Palmdale and, um, some groceries from Sam's club, but Michael ball had a mansion in Malibu. All of the riders were in getting driven around and, you know, escalades with rock racing branding and the riders on the team were like, did I remember, um, Rasan Bahadi was on the team and Rasan, you know, multi-time national champion, uh, in- incredibly highly regarded writer in that era. And then you had other writers like Tyler Hamilton was on the team. Um, who, who else was on there? I think it was like, I want to say Oscar Pierre. Yes. No, not him. It was, was, uh, it was Manchebo. It? Yeah. Manchebo was definitely on the team. Oh, Santiago Batero was also okay. on the team. Yeah. Who was at one point like supposed to be one of these princes who was promised who were going to challenge Lance Armstrong. Yeah. Of course, that never happened. They all kind of right. fell short, but they, these are very good ri- riders, like world class riders. Well, and he had signed Floyd after Floyd's doping positive. And I don't remember what was going on, but Floyd showed up at the house and it was kind of a like, whoa, because I, Floyd hadn't been out in public um, since his USADA. Um, arbitration hearing so yeah it was it was wild but like that's definitely one of the things i remember oh they also had kale leo grand who i remember yes yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) i remember like a day or two after that camp that's actually when he got popped and then he was off the team but yeah it was a really interesting moment in time and that's uh kind of some of the different dimensions of cycling i wrote about and then i also ended up doing a lot of travel related um mountain bike journalism Again, going back to, I kind of let my curiosity lead me and take me to places that I wanted to go. So I ended up traveling quite a bit to just go mountain biking, cool places and write about it outside of some of my other work. You're like ahead of your time. That's like, that's now the bike packing revolution. There's <laughs> like an entire like industry dedicated to it. But that that's so like, there's the world tour racing, which has been called different things through different eras like we all know and we love it i talk about it a lot on the podcast it's what the newsletter's focused on but there's also this it's it's really hard to explain like i raced like crit racing in the u.s at a high level um i almost don't like talking about it it's like i almost now think it's silly i'm like almost pseudo embarrassed that i dedicated so much time and energy to it but the racing is a really it's a really high level and specifically like la is such like a great not something you would imagine if you've never been to LA and ridden in LA, but great cycling scene. And it's a great racing scene. Just so Cal in general, like the physical races might not be that impressive. It's like racing in a, you know, it's like kind of a rundown area of town or like an office park or doing loops for a circuit race, but the level of racing is incredibly high. And specifically in the time that you were there, I, you know, I, I don't know if anyone, I would love to do like a podcast series, like breaking down, like what happened to us racing between like 2000, let's say 2001 and, and the present. Um, I wonder if the 2008 crash did 
kind of suck and like the rise of Google and Facebook sucked a lot of, you know, pretty much every ad dollar out of that ecosystem. So there was just like, you know, if you're going to average, if, why would you sponsor like a, a regional crit when you could just buy a bunch of Facebook pay-per-click ads and, but you were there for like, those are like the glory days of, of us racing, in my opinion. I mean, you have like high level, high level guys, high level teams, like rock racing was just one of the teams that was based in North America and racing at the time, the tour of California was just getting started. I think that was like a really, it was like an exciting, optimistic time for us racing. And it's like, I look back at it now and it's like almost cute. It's like, Oh, like we thought this was going somewhere. It ended up, going, you know, there was some good races, there was great teams, great riders. And then now it's kind of like, almost feels like we're back to where we started, like in the breaking away days where you have like European racing and then like grassroots US racing. Like, can you tell me a little bit about like what the scene was like, you know, to be on the ground and like what you think happened? And and do you think there is a place for US racing in, you know, how does that fit in like the wider puzzle of world racing? Yeah, Spencer, I know you raced at a way higher level than I ever did. And, you know, when I was in SoCal, like I said, I was, I was riding like 300 miles a week, <laughs> actually. Yeah, oh, I've been there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, that was like part of my freelance lifestyle. I was like all in for a couple of years on like, um, you know, I really want to be great at road racing and, or crit racing, whatever the case may be, but, you know, going out on rides and part of what I think is really unique about LA that I discovered during my time there, you know, you had what was happening on the road, which I'm definitely going to talk about, but also as fixed gear culture was starting to boom in the, you know, early mid 2004 to 2007 kind of era, there was just like this really vibrant community of all kinds of people getting into bikes and coming together and organizing communities. There was a ride when I was like deep in crit racing in LA, there was a thing called midnight riders that started, uh, a friend of mine, Kim started it. And I was, I think I went on the second ride. There were about a dozen people. It was a Friday initially once a month, we would meet in a parking lot in echo park. And then it was like a curated ride. There was always a theme often related to a movie or like whatever, something that was happening that time of year. By the time I stopped going on those rides, there would be over a thousand people getting together on a Friday night in this parking lot to go out and ride. We would get, I remember getting chased by police helicopters, police cars. It was like, it was like absolutely <laughs> wild. And then they, there started to be all of these other kind of curated rides. There was one called CyArc that was always architectural tours. And it started at CyArc, which is an architecture school in downtown LA. But on the racing side, like when LA has, I think a very unique situation with like on the east side of town, well, in the center of town, you have Griffith Park, which has climbing. It also has relatively safe flat riding that you can go do on the east side. Like you get out into the Pasadena era area of Eagle Rock. You can go up the two into a lot of the mountains that are used were used in the tour of California. And you could, you know, you could go climb from sea level to 7,000 feet up at Mount Wilson. You could go on a 150, 200 mile ride. And you see a lot of people doing that and making content about it. Now you also have the Rose Bowl on that side of town. There was more or less a training race twice a week at the Rose Bowl. Um, 
which also featured soccer balls dropping into the middle of a group of yeah, 200 I've people. Yeah. This. And like, <laughs> yeah. like dodging rollerbladers and people pushing strollers, maybe, um, not the best thing for the reputation of competitive cycling, but it was exciting to participate in at the time. And then on the West side, you have the donut ride that goes down to Palos Verdes. You have Malibu, you have all the canyons. And I mean, you're seeing all of this now, like if you're on YouTube, if you're on Strava, if you're following world tour cyclists, this is where everybody goes to train in the winter. Now, Chris Froome was out there this winter because the riding is so good. But at that time you go out, I'd go out on a training ride at the Rose bowl, or I'd go to the, the world famous Matros ride. And you'd have people like Eric Saunders, um, Rasan Bahati, Rigo Mesa, Kale Leogrian, Tony Cruz, who was on the USPS team, um, Klinger. Like these were the people who would be out on the ride. And I know Boulder is like that as well. But for me, as kind of like an everyday average cyclist, that was really exciting. I, I still remember, honestly, one time at the Rose Bowl having a buddy lead me out. And I got like third behind Rasan in the sprint. And like, that's like, I'm sure he had ridden like 120 miles that day already. <laughs> but for me, that was like a lifetime achievement. So there was just, it was a really vibrant community. And I don't know if you remember this, but there was a domestic pro at the time, Jamie Palinetti. And Jamie was a high level crit racer. And he also was an actor and filmmaker. And he made two films. One was called The Hard Road, which actually was partial inspiration for the title of my podcast, Choose the Hard Way. Um, and then he had a film called Pro. And The Hard Road was just about like the crit racing scene at the time and people who were doing a lot of the things that people are doing today, which is working full-time jobs and then maybe getting a free bike, maybe getting free meals, going and staying at host housing to, to do crits and like to try to make a go at domestic racing. And I think, I think where us racing is always broken down is I personally, I think crit racing is incredibly, incredibly compelling. And I think it's so easily digestible to the average person who follows other sports because it doesn't last that long. So it like, it kind of suits the attention span of people in the world right now, like even for streaming or TV, it's like, it's a good length. The competition is insane, but you would really need to get cameras inside of the race to show like what's actually going on. <laughs> Cause when we see that, yeah. when we see that from writers and I know there are a lot of different hot takes on what's what's actually happening inside of those races now but even when people are um operating as safely as possible with the best of intentions it's an incredibly dangerous discipline as you know the speeds are high and the fitness that you have to have is like crazy equally it's not it's not something that's going to make you a world tour writer and you know, there are a handful of people who have gone from that community to being world tour riders or being professional cyclists in various disciplines. But I think the disconnect in the U.S. has always been trying to see itself as a feeder system into world tour racing versus developing our own unique kind of racing and developing a sustainable economic model for that form of racing. And you know, it's easy for me to say because I've never been a race promoter. I've just been a journalist, a participant, and an observer. But it seems to me this the sport has 
the right mechanics. And if you can then map onto that personalities, which is the other like ingredient you've got to have to have really compelling content. And that's what, you know, um, sports like the UFC, for example, like people are watching it because the fighters are, are really interesting and they probably spend as much time thinking about how they present their persona and mediate themselves and how they create content. I know we're seeing more of that in cycling now, but the reality is it's, it's really hard for the average person to like be gripped and really get into crit racing because for the most part, it's, you kind of can't tell what's going on and like, you're not really attached to the personalities, um, who are doing the racing. And I know that that's changing and that there are writers who are really fantastic at mediating themselves and kind of creating, um, images or authentically being who they are in a way that's really appealing to people. But yeah, that's kind of my, it's kind of my observation about us racing. And I think the mistake that happens or the, where it breaks down over time is when we try to do stuff like have big stage races, which are super cool. Like I love the tour of California. I'm from Missouri. I love the tour of Missouri when it was happening there, but it's really challenging financially from a road closure point of view, like everything yeah. to make those, those races happen. And, you know, are we're a much more vast country than many of the countries where these other stage races are happening that have, you know, a hundred year history and people are like orienting their summer around going to the race. Right. And even, I mean, I, I live in Colorado. I love Colorado. Like some of the tour Colorado routes, I guess it was called the pros us pro cycling right. challenge. It just doesn't, the U.S. is a funny place. Like there's just a lot of riding. Colorado is very mountainous. And there was like, even in the mountains, there's a lot of like kind of flat. You're just kind of on like a big road in the middle of a massive basin for like 60 miles and nothing's happening. Right. It's a, it's a tough landscape to do compelling road racing in, but, and in the U.S. there's so many like cities that were, you know, maybe really prosperous in the twenties and the forties and the fifties who have kind of like, you know, their best times are seemingly behind them, but you know, you, you can roll into Tulsa and take over the town for four days right. and put like an amazing race on in the middle of a city. And it's not that hard. Like it's, you're not really disrupting anyone because that city center has decayed quite a bit, which is unfortunate for the city, but it provides like a great venue for racing. I think that's been really successful. Like uh, obviously the Tulsa tough event has been, has been really successful, but it just, yeah, it feels like you're fighting an uphill battle trying to match the European model versus just kind of embracing something that's different enough that you don't have to compete one for one with, you know, you're like really compelling, even second and third tier racings like Trollo Bion or Perry, Perry tours and in, in Europe is so good that you, you would not want to compete with that as like an inter entertainment product. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think to your point, that's why we've seen towns like Leadville with the Leadville 100 and Emporia now with all of the, you know, I know there's unbound gravel, but they're now building a franchise of gravel races that are based out of there. And like, we're seeing the same thing in other towns across the United States, Lincoln, Nebraska with gravel worlds. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. It's insane to me that Emporia is like at all a destination for cyclists i still cannot wrap my mind around it yeah i mean i i grew up like close to emporia it was not it's not a cycling mecca but what's cool is these these races come in and they like 
the it takes the locals like a couple of years and then it's like then like they understand what's going on so it's like shows you can convert people to the sport to be interested in what's going on yeah and now emporia is all in and as far as gravel riding goes like the terrain it's beautiful like it is really fantastic riding once you get out and and hit the gravel i guess you're not hitting the road you're hitting the gravel road you're living yeah you're living that uh the spirit of gravel right i guess the tech is kind of the roads were almost like when i grew up in kansas i would almost never ride a road bike on the gravel because it's it's really chunky it's yeah. a tough gravel yep um, with, with rim brakes, it's just hard to get a big enough tire in there. Right. But with disc brakes, you can just put like big old balloons in your road bike right? and go out and ride with these amazing untouched roads. It's almost like toe in surfing, then made a bunch of waves that were previously unsurfable, surfable. Right. Like that's almost what's happening here. And it's, it's a lot of good terrain to ride. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that just getting your perspective on it, like you see gravel happening, do you see a lot of similarities to the Norba boom that you kind of not were born into, but like you're at least in a cycling sense, you kind of came of age in. And do you think that ultimately we'll have the same outcome where it gets so big, it almost gets so big that it caves in on itself? Yeah, I hope not. Equally looking at what's happening right now, I think part of what's really cool is people are drawn to participating in these events, right? So it's the idea that I can go participate. There are professional athletes here who are doing the same thing. We all start at the same time. And I know that like, these are the aspects of gravel racing that are currently kind of contentious that are being sorted out and particularly now that the UCI is entering the scene and it's going to have gravel world championships. It, it remains to be seen like what will happen overall. Uh, and you know, if you look at parallels in other sports, like marathon running, for example, marathoning is like on the upswing again, but like it's gone through boom and bust cycles, um, obstacle course racing really similar, right? So yeah. like those things, so people, people are drawn to things that help them, I think, expand their notion of what is personally possible. And gravel is one of those things that compels people to leap into probably like the unknown or to reach beyond what they think they can do. And I think that's initially why gravel had what at the time were very radical distances. Like, you know, unbound was a, a 205 mile race and going way back to my days of writing about, um, cycling as a journalist, I remember probably in like 2003 or 2004, maybe I had a column every month in mountain bike magazine, Rodale's, uh, mountain bike publication. And I remember hearing about trans Iowa and I reached out to Jeff Krakowi, who was along with guitar Ted, one of the original organizers and participants in that event and writing about that. And I mean, that's, you know, that's really, I don't remember which race came first, but you know, that was like a 300 plus mile self-supported race that was totally insane so that was kind of the ethos of it and and now i think people see that they're like that's cool it's becoming more accessible and normalized whether it remains compelling over time i think is going to depend on how how promoters continue to probably innovate and keep it fresh and interesting because gravel could really go in a lot of different directions at this point keeping a participant access accessible 
while remaining aspirational, while continually bringing something different is important. If we're going to bring new events into the fold versus something like, you know, if it just remains a handful of races that are, you know, kind of the iconic events, that's great. And people will always want to do those. People will always want to do unbound going forward. I think the same way mountain bikers want to do Leadville. But, you know, if you look at Leadville, that event sells out instantly every year, but it's, we haven't had, had a concomitant rise of cross country mountain biking or yeah, like yeah. over the past 20 years. Although I will say this is my personal hypothesis about where all this is headed to mountain bike. You have to have access to mountains or to trails. I know that you're familiar with Lawrence, Kansas, of course, like that has the river trail. Um, it has a number of other trails. But gravel, I think people are drawn to because number one, they're afraid of cars and they're more distracted drivers than ever before. So they like to be on roads with less vehicles. So that's one of the factors in the rise of gravel. Another, another is that kind of aspirational existential. I want an adventure, but I'm not quite ready to like go climb Mount Everest. So like I can go to Emporia, yeah. Kansas and do this cool bike ride. Um, people like competing and. I think what we're going to see happen over time is gravel is super compelling. I think we're also going to see people, if we're seeing it with the technology, like I was just reading a, an article yesterday about flat bar gravel bikes, which is like a new thing. <laughs> and it's just like, and it's like, they're, they're, they're called mountain bikes, right? Like they're called, yeah. they're called mountain bikes. I'm like, this looks a lot like the stump jumper, uh, that I bought from Wheeler Schwinn in Kansas city. And, you know, 1990 that had Shimano Dior DX thumb shifters. I mean, it's like the bikes are better now, but it's like, whoa, I'm more stable with wide bars. Yes, you are. And I think what people are going to discover is once you start turning with those bars, it gets more exciting. And then once you go on to single track, you're like, whoa, this is super cool. And then once you're completely off the road and you're like out in a, in nature, then you're like, wow, this is, this is like, I think actually even cooler. And then you know what? You're cross country mountain biking. So I think we're headed in the direction of more people discovering cross country mountain biking with Blevins having won a world cup recently and the short track world title. I actually think I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do some prognosticating here. I think cross country mountain biking is about to boom. This is, this is a, so interesting. You say that there's a, um, a gentleman who listens to this podcast, um, he has his own podcast, the slow ride podcast, yeah. Tim Hayes, yeah. and he has, he'll like rant and rave about the same thing that it's like insane that no one's really covering the sport in the U S that it's making a comeback. And, and I tend to agree with them. I mean, I actually would love to expand out into, into cross country mountain biking coverage because yeah, the companies are literally doing reveals where it's like, check out our new bike. It's a flat bar gravel bike with a front fork. And you're like, this right. is a mountain bike. Like what is happening right now? But you do, yeah, people like people will then get interested in mountain biking through gravel biking from road biking. Yeah. And you're right. It's like, well, yeah. What happens if you get off the gravel road, you're on single track and it's nice. You're in nature. And, and I, yeah, I'm not quite, I can't quite put my finger on cross country mountain biking should be more popular because you watch these races and they're very cool. Like it seems like they've actually solved a lot of problems because the races are short. It's like easily digestible. 
it's easy to televise. It's not expensive because you're not out on roads and the athletes are amazing. It's not, I mean, maybe it's just because Americans have been so bad for so long that it's just hard to latch onto. And with Blevins, we, and then obviously there's a lot of great women actually, but with Blevins, we finally have like a guy who can compete with the best cross country mountain bikers in the world that, that, that will help people have an entryway into it. I'm thinking back to why Norba died. And I think that this is important to note, and it will also be a factor in whether cross country mountain biking takes off again. Norba part of why Norba failed ultimately and imploded is because United States mountain biking was 100% anchored to high altitude riding at resorts. That's where all of the events happen. And I know resorts have awesome infrastructure now, and they have everything that you need to put on races in a relatively simple fashion. But if you look at what was happening with World Cup racing in the mid to late 90s, what they actually were doing is what cyclocross frequently does now, which is they would find a way to have a cross-country mountain bike race in a city center. And, you know, like looking at LA, for example, I'm, you know, again, I'm not a promoter and I guarantee the, the um, permitting would be incredibly onerous, but if you could have a cross-country mountain bike race in a place like Echo Park or Griffith Park, which are in the city center, easily accessible for spectators, and for participants as well, versus I'm getting in a car, I'm driving to Big Bear for the weekend, which is whatever, two and a half hours from LA. It has great riding. It's beautiful, but it's just cycling, as you know, like there is an equity and access gap in cycling. And it's the responsibility of all of us to close that gap. And it's part of why it's so hard for competitive forms of the sport to succeed. There are so many barriers to somebody getting out to a mountain resort to go on a bike ride, much less compete in a race, right? Like, it, it, so I, I think that uh, part of what needs to happen is the races have to happen in more accessible places for more people. And I think that's what could help cross country take off again. Yeah. Yeah. And I do, there's like kind of a caustic culture in, in mountain biking where it's like, if I ride like, nice trails around my house in Boulder. People are like, what are you doing out there? Like, that's not gnarly enough. Like you gotta, like, you gotta be taking a lift up to the craziest run for it to be worth your time. But it's like, yeah, but you're going to do that six times a year. That's not something that you can like build a participation based sport off of like going to Whistler and taking a lift and then doing these runs. Like you're just setting yourself up for a super niche interest base. Yeah, no, Absolutely. And I have tremendous respect for people who have the appetite for and do that type of writing. I'm not one of them. Like caution is the better part of valor. And at this point in my uh, mediocre competitive cycling career and training, I primarily keep my wheels stuck to the ground. So that's kind of how I, I roll when I'm out there. And I think you're right for the average person, the skill level has to be appropriate for most people to go do the races. And we haven't talked about this, but I think NICA actually, what NICA is doing with high school mountain bike racing is a really, really good example of how you can grow the sport, how you can bring more and different types of people into cycling, make it more accessible. I, I will say that something that I think generally is, um, 
you know, a potential barrier and particularly for young people. And I know I had this experience when I was young is equipment. Like I said, you can go out, anybody can go out. If you have enough money, you can spend, I, it blows my mind that the, you know, a really high end bike now costs like 15 or $18,000. <laughs> but you know, if you have that level of coin, like you can go out and you can buy performance versus, you know, there being some kind of like stock car type situation where you can have like a certain amount of equipment for, yeah. you know, and I mean, there are things like, and I know in road racing with gear limitations for juniors, for example, and I know a lot of people don't like that, but are there potentially ways to make it simpler and more inclusive for more different types of people to access competitive cycling? I think the little 500 is actually a really interesting example where everybody's out there on, I don't even remember what the brand of the bikes are, but you know, it's like a, there's, there's super crappy. Yeah, it's, a, it's like shocking. Yeah. yeah. It's a coaster brake bike with drop bars on a, you know, racing on a, a cinder track, <laughs> but, but it's, <laughs> it's actually incredibly compelling and, you know, for yeah. viewers and for competitors. I'm curious how you went from, obviously I think the game changed and the econ economic model shift shifted how you went from, you know, freelance writing to, um, to your current position, not your current position, but your current company, Strava, and just your relationship with Strava, because I, it's definitely changed everyone's life. I don't like just in some way and, and how we interact with our own writing and how we interact with other people's writing. And how did you even find out about them? And how did you make the decision to like leave your freelance life, which you seem to be enjoying quite a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So Around 2000, around 2009, I, well, in like 2006, I met Randy Hetrick, who is a former Navy SEAL who started the company TRX, the human performance and training company. I wrote a story about Randy and about the TRX for Outside Magazine and content marketing was kind of just really becoming a big thing with blogging and YouTube. And Randy and I stayed in touch. I thought it was an incredibly compelling product. And over time, he persuaded me more or less to leave journalism and to come join him at TRX and become a part of their company. And uh, I, I really enjoyed that experience. I love freelancing, but I chewed the gum long enough that there really wasn't much flavor left. I wanted to do something different. I really wanted the experience of being on a different kind of really high-performing team. And at TRX, I became the head of content there, overseeing all their editorial content, content for education, social media, everything for sales across a number of different verticals. And at the time, I was, I also was like really, really getting into racing cyclocross and gravel. That's when I, you know, had my, uh, began my, my run at Unbound and, uh, the, uh, the B level Bay Area super prestige, uh, title, which I went after for a couple of years, sub elite. And, um, during that time, Strava really took off. I saw a lot of people using it and I, I had been doing like quantitative data driven training and cycling for a really long time. I had access to one of the first power tap power meters, which I feel like it was called tune before it was called power tap. Maybe I'm wrong. But like I had like this is a you were like a celebrity. This is like a big a big reveal. <laughs> <laughs> These were hard to get a hold of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had one in like I believe ninety nine or two thousand, and it, I remember at the time like I didn't even know. I was just like 
what's the point of this? I'm just looking at numbers on this thing, <laughs> you know, you know, yeah. yeah. But eventually, you know, I, uh, I actually, I got my USA cycling coaching certification, a bunch of other training certs, just cause I was really passionate about human performance and wanted to learn more about it. And so when Strava came around, had tons of friends using it, was really hearing a lot of interesting things about the brand. And then a uh, position came up at Strava. It seemed really interesting to me. And I saw how they were bringing something new and different to cycling, motivating and inspiring people in a new and different way. And I joined them. And yeah. And since then, I've become vice president of communications there. The company now has over 95 million athletes in 195 countries. We're adding 2 million new athletes a month. And I think there's so many things that I personally enjoy about the Strava subscription that bring value to my cycling life. And I think different people get different things out of Strava. And as you know, Strava's like this, I know the audience of this podcast is cyclists and predominantly core cyclists. And yes, there are tons of world tour athletes over 75% of the Peloton at the Tour de France were sharing their activities on Strava this year and, you know, the Olympics everywhere. Strava is everywhere, but it really, it's for everybody who sweats. So if you sweat, you're an athlete and you belong on Strava. And for me, it's funny. Like I went and walked my dog this morning and I, I Strava in my activity. And for me, it's really about telling the story of my athletic life, capturing what I'm doing and finding motivation and inspiration by following and, and sharing my activities with my friends around the world. I now live in rural Maine. It's during the pandemic. Part of what's kept me really motivated is going after PRs on some of my favorite segments or, you know, having some friendly and spirited competition with some of the people here in the community where I live. And it's honestly like, I find it to be incredibly motivating. Um, I would share that before I moved here, what, one of the things that I did was, you know, just trying to find a handful of segments before I moved from California to Maine that I really, really cared the most about and trained really hard to post the best times that I could reach before I moved out of California. And for me, that was just as motivating, honestly, as when I used to like go out and do a CBR crit in LA or, you know, going and doing something like unbound even like, uh, it just really democratizes the experience of, of getting to compete. And, you know, one way to think about Strava is like, it really is currently right now, the world's largest events and competition platform through our challenges platform, through our leaderboards and having the ability to go out and, and do that every time I go on a ride, if I want to. And, you know, I also take lots of Z1, Z2 days, but when I want to go out and hit it, like it's incredible, like that being able to asynchronously compete and then share that experience through memorializing my activities is something I truly love. Yeah. It's so interesting. I, I feel like I was in better shape in 2020 when I wasn't racing than I was in a long time, just right. because of you, we have like really nice long canyons here and right. you can just kind of go out and you can target things over time. And it's like, I was just riding by myself, but with Strava, I was able to reach a level of performance. I never would have been able to. And 
I mean, part of me, I mean, I love Strava. I'm a total Strava addict. Like if I did a big ride and it had a corrupted file, I'd probably like cry openly in the street about it. Uh, but part of me, it is so bizarre when it's like, wow, I see like Wout Van Aert wins Milano San Remo and then like the rides on Strava. It's almost like, should I be seeing this? Like, is this like, you know, like when they, when they, uh, like when Queen Elizabeth was um, crowned Queen of England, they like, put her under a blanket to do the anointment ceremony where it's like, is this taking, like, should this be private? Like what is going on right now? It's still, I can't quite wrap my mind about being able to like go dissect Wout's power profile in a race that he's won, like a major monument. So it's, it's, I, I, as a user, I love it. Um, and it is, inter- I'm so, it's so interesting to be able to see like Tade Pogacar's power numbers in the 2020 tour, but I still can't quite get used to it of just, and then you can see they're like training rides. It's, it's really wild stuff. And it's, it's so cool on one hand, but on the other hand, as part of someone who like followed racing through long form magazines, like pro cycling, it's, it's very weird. I almost still can't get used to it of like the amount of access we have. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely enabling a new and different kind of storytelling and you know, it's part of what I really love about the content that you create and part of the direction that cycling journalism in general is going, being able to have that context, that quantitative context for someone's performance. Like granted, when you're looking at (laughs) these world tour athletes and like their Watts for a kilo and, and thinking about yourself, at least when you're me, you're like, yes, I'm, I'm doing the right thing, working in communications, not and I, <laughs> right versus uh, like trying to pursue becoming a, a professional athlete. And I think pro cycling, is it just like an incredibly brutal, brutal way to make a living? And I have such deep respect for people who are able to do it. And, you know, that like biometric social storytelling, I think is incredible. And I think can draw more people into the sport, provide more context in a way that currently, like you just can't, when you watch an NFL game, for example, like, you know, that these are the world's best football players, that they're incredibly strong, but there's something about being able to have that quantitative dimension of the performance that I think really is highly additive. And I I just, I just would share, I worked with two athletes uh, earlier in my time, at Strava, Corey Richards and Adrian Ballinger, when they were climbing Mount Everest without oxygen, they two they did two separate attempts over two years. The first year, Corey made it. The second year, Adrian made the summit. And being able to look at the the data for that, it just like it absolutely blew my mind. It it just was incredible to me. And I remember growing up, I loved the tour. I also was always fa- fascinated by mountaineering. It's not something I personally have any interest in going to do. I like to perhaps hike, but yeah, Yeah. like just getting to see like what actually went into that effort and then seeing, you know, like looking at their training leading up to it, which same thing with world tour athletes, I find that to be just incredibly interesting. And I think that's the case for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely know what you mean. And before we go, I'd love to give you a chance to talk about your podcast a little bit. It, choose the hard way. Like everything we've talked about, we're talking about like being in LA, the cycling scene, like from where we're from, this is insane. This, these would be the ramblings of crazy people. 
And <laughs> <laughs> even like, even Strava, I, I, I'm just trying to, we both went to like pretty normal, like big state schools right. from, from around the region. I don't think like free thought or free expression or like any type of alternative careers were really fostered or there. I almost think they're actively frowned upon. Sure. It can be hard to like square the circle of like, well, you're kind of interested in, in this alternative pursuit, putting a lot of effort, a lot of time into it. I mean, you've been very successful in your career and then you, but, but it is, it would almost be an alternative career to the type of like rote environment that you grew up in. Um, but then you have this wonderful podcast where you get to connect with people, you know, that have been successful in all types of different things. And just, can you tell me a little bit why you wanted to start that and like your motivations for doing that? Yeah, absolutely. I think the environment that I grew up in, um, was, it was an awesome environment. It was a very encouraging environment equally. I think, you know, it's no secret the Midwest is like relatively, it's a relatively conservative place. And I think that goes across many different aspects of life. And when it comes to professional life and, you know, sports as well, like what I've described with cycling, even though, I mean, I can remember starting out and thinking like, oh, like, gosh, how can somebody like go on a two hour ride? Like that's impossible. Or like, how could I ever ride a hundred miles? But I just, whatever, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And kind of in spite of some, self-doubts or lack of belief that I had. I don't know. I just felt drawn to doing it. And that's really been the case for a lot of things in my life and my career, whether it's some of my like artistic pursuits with writing music, other things, or professionally, I personally am drawn to doing complex and difficult things because I find those to be the most satisfying things in life. And that's something that I realized over time, like, I'll tell you what, at the end of my freelance writing career, when I look back on it and it wasn't all perfect and it was a very, very challenging thing to do. Uh, you know, I started out taking that first clip from vice photocopying it, shoving it in an envelope and mailing it to New York with like some pitch ideas that I'd typed out and printed out on my printer. And then over time, went from there up to, you know, by the end of my career, writing cover stories and doing some of the things that I described. And at the end, I look back and I thought, wow, like this was probably like the hardest possible way to do this. Like once I started to learn more about the mechanics of journalism and like being on staff or even networking, like I just didn't know or intuitively do any of those things. And part of what I realized is the world's top performers, many of whom I had met and written about, they all run into the same obstacles. They all have the same self-doubts. And the difference is the manner in which and the speed with which the world's top performers metabolize that doubt or experiences they have where they hit a dead end. So something I really missed about journalism was telling stories of the world's top performers, getting to spend time with them, getting to interview them, Equally, something I disliked about journalism is I never actually got to tell the most interesting part of the story, which was generally like asides or things my subjects would share with me that like just could, like couldn't show up in a story. Like I remember being with one incredibly world famous person whose name you would recognize if I said it, but I'm not going to. But I was with this person in Malibu. They'd just been in a really big film. I was there writing about them. We went out 
on a drive in this person's classic car from their classic car collection. They had just published a book of poetry and like they're, they had this beautiful home on the ocean. And then they talked to me kind of complaining about, yeah, but you know, I don't get, I don't really get like type of role X and like, that's, I really feel like I should be getting that. So there's just kind of like this perpetual dissatisfaction is one way to look at it, but also always like wanting to go bigger, wanting to do the next thing. And I know that can be a bit of a trap, but I wanted to tell those types of stories. And so what Choose the Hard Way is really about, it's about sitting down with some of the world's peak performers across a broad variety of disciplines and hearing the story behind the the highlight reel. And the thesis really is that you are what you overcome. And I want to share that message with as many people as possible. And I hope, you know, this is like a high aspiration for my podcast, but I really want to empower and inspire more people to aim higher, to reach for bigger things, to, to like reach beyond what they personally might believe is possible for them. Because the reality is that's what every top performer in the world has ever experienced, no matter what level of talent they have, no matter how dedicated they are, no matter how hard they work. They have bad days, just like everyone else. They have moments when they want to give up and they just metabolize it a little bit differently. And it's actually something that anybody can do. So whatever level of talent you have, you can take it. You can learn how to work smarter and harder, and you can do things that are like way beyond the realm of what you feel might be possible today. If just open your aperture and dream really big and work hard. That's fantastic. I mean, everyone should listen to um, to your, your podcast. It's, it's really inspiring. I find myself wondering that as well, or just like what separate, like how, I don't understand, like, how could someone be like CEO of JP Morgan? Like, uh, what are they, what, yeah. How are they metabolizing information and doubt that's different than, than other people? So I I find that really interesting as well. So it's it's great to have you here to talk about it. And I, I want to be respectful of your time. So I will let you go. Well, I want to be respectful of your time as well, Spencer, because I know you probably have some subscriber exclusive content that you need to pump out that I'm looking forward to consuming and discussing with my friends. So let's part ways here. <laughs> All right. Well, thank thank you so much for coming on, Andrew. It was great to have you. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and I will be back next week with the regular scheduled breakdown of everything competitive road cycling. All right. Have a great week. Bye.